0: From Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. "'On the 24th day of the first month, "'as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, "'I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen "'with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. "'His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, "'his eyes like flaming torches, "'his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, "'and his voice like the sound of a multitude. "'I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision.' Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling.
1: Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God— your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian king kingdom res- resisted me twenty-one days. Then Michael, one of the chief priests, came. Ugh, chief princes came to help me because I was determined detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you. What will happen to your people in the future? For the vision contains a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed my face towards the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my eyes and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid. You are who, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke, to me i was strengthened and said speak my lord since you have given me strength so he said do you know why i have come to you soon i will return to fight against the prince of persia and when i go the prince of greece will come but first i will tell you what is written in the book of truth no one supports no one supports me against them except michael your prince
2: Thank you, Bethany. Thank you, Sheila. Not much fun reading a Bible reading where the sentence ends without a bracket. That's because if you had the Bibles open, you'd see the bracketed bit goes beyond the end of chapter 10. But it's deeply disconcerting to have that sort of thing. Or or I would have found it disconcerting. Let's pray anyway with those verses in front of us. Ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a story I like about a person who who got given a, a dictionary as a present, but who misunderstood the nature of the book they'd been given and mistakenly assumed that the book was actually a novel. So they wanted to be polite. They sent a thank you note. They said, thank you very much indeed for the book you gave me. I'm finding it quite hard work to read, but at least it explains every single word as you go along. Now, Daniel 10 is not easy reading, and I am not going to attempt to make it easier by explaining it word by word or even verse by verse. What I want to do instead is to trace out just three themes in the chapter. And the first, I think, is an obvious one, is the theme of human weakness, which is apparent from the very start of the chapter. So verse 1, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. Verse 2, At that time I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no-choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until three weeks were over, which, as an introduction, dates the oracle at probably about 537 BC, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia's reign. And um, without stating it specifically, we began thinking about this last week. Um, some of the tumultuous world events that were happening at the time, which Daniel had actually foretold during his lengthy career as a prophet, they've now begun to happen. So he's lived through one of the regime changes which he had predicted. Babylonia has given way to Persia. The significant thing is that when he defeated the Babylonians, Cyrus had allowed some of the Jews that were sort of vassal people in his kingdom... They go back to Jerusalem from their long exile. Uh, that had happened in the first year of his reign. It's now the third year of Cyrus' reign. And Daniel, we discover, has not gone back. He's in his late 80s now, which may be a reason for him to stay put where he was in Babylon. He's been there for more than 70 years. Um... If you know a bit about the Old Testament storyline, you'll know that the return had been something of a disappointment, a bit of a damp squib. In chapter nine, we looked at last week, Daniel had prayed for the end of the exile, the 70 years which Jeremiah had spoken about were up. Bang on time comes this decree of Cyrus. But the news travels back to Daniel in Babylon that the rebuilding of Jerusalem is fraught with difficulty and opposition. So he is mourning And fasting, a self-imposed weakness, admittedly, but it's still a picture of human weakness as the chapter starts. Here's this lonely old man. He's long past his sell-by date, really. He's missed the return to Jerusalem. He's frustrated in Babylon. He's bemoaning the failings of the modern world. And as the chapter unfolds, and the events in the chapter unfold, the stuff that uh, was read to us, They only add to this sense of weakness and struggle. Let me just list the references to Daniel's pitiful condition from the rest of the chapter. Verse 8, I had no strength left, he says. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. In verse 9, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. Verse 10, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Verse 11, when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Up he gets. And then down again in verse 15. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face towards the ground and was speechless. Verse 16, I'm overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord. I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. And what you've got in this little section from chapters 11 and 12, this is just a sort of a, a bill for the next Couple of weeks as we finish the the book of Daniel, you've got the longest oracle in the book happening. And our verses today are a lengthy preamble to that oracle, the last two chapters of the book. It's lengthy because Daniel needed great encouragement. Uh, Twice he gets given that lovely title, You Who Are Highly Esteemed. Twice he's got to be told not to fear. Twice he's told to be strong. Three times he actually has to have a hand laid on him, be touched in order to be ready to receive the oracles coming his way. So that's the picture of human weakness that you've got in our chapter tonight. And I suppose it's not something new. We've noticed before how Daniel was polaxed by his visions and dreams but I wonder whether we've learned that lesson. Here's the lesson. There is a cost to being in fellowship with God. It's not a relationship of equals between us and God. Of course not. We can't expect to come out of an encounter with God as if we can match him, as if we're fighting fit and we match him strength for strength. I suppose some of us will never really be able to know God for ourselves until we accept that that must humble us. The novelist Dostoevsky put it like this, man must bow down before the infinitely great. See, I think we easily buy into the idea that we're all meant to be omnicompetent, glory to man in the highest, for man is the master of things. That's what we'd like to believe. But maybe, and maybe this has been a lesson of the last couple of years, maybe some of us here are painfully aware of our frailties. And in that situation, it's actually encouraging to know that human weakness is acknowledged by heaven and that God upends our values. We always think strong is good, but actually he pronounces here as highly esteemed a weak Elderly saint. So let's move on to the next theme. And I'm not sure I've got the right words for this heading. Uh, human weakness to start with. Heavenly power is my second heading. Now this chapter, I don't know if you were struggling to work out all these princes and stuff that was going on. And Michael, who, where does he fit in? And the end of the bracket was missing at the end and all of that. This chapter is one of the most detailed descriptions of angelic and demonic powers in the Bible. I don't know if that sets your pulse rating as a a first sentence of my next heading, but it is interesting, isn't it? This view of reality where there are angels and princes, supernatural princes and demons, this view of reality, a reality which is unseen and largely unacknowledged in our world today, but... It should be a case of our eyes being opened to it as we're in church this evening. This is something you wouldn't see, you won't read in the papers or anything like that. We need to be aware of it. There was a time once in the lifetime of Elisha, the prophet, where the king of Aram, I suppose that's modern-day Syria, sent an army to get hold of the prophet Elisha because he realizes that the prophet is effectively a secret weapon for Israel. He can't beat Israel in battle if Elisha is feeding information to the king of Israel. So the king of Aram, the enemy, has got to get Elisha and neutralize him. So the Aramean army surrounds the town where Elisha is in hiding. Don't worry about it, Elisha tells his servant. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prays for his servant to see things as they really are servant looked, we read, and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, it's something like that here in Daniel 10. We're not always aware of the spiritual realities that there are around us as we come to a, a smallish church building in a smallish village and there's a smallish congregation. We probably don't have that sense of chariots of fire. All around all Saints Little Shelford tonight. We're unconscious of that reality. But the unseen reality is that there are powerful heavenly forces at work in our world. And this is the encouraging bit, greater forces for us, if we belong to Christ, than against us. So you've got lots of different messengers and it, the hard thing is to just piece together almost which side they're on let's try and piece it together a bit Daniel of course meets one such heavenly messenger in the first bit of chapter verses four to six on the 24th day of the first month as I was standing on the bank of the great river the Tigris I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the fine gold from Uphaz around his waist his body was like topaz his face like lightning His eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Now, there's some debate uh, in the people that write learned stuff about this book um, as to whether this figure is an angel or could it be a vision of Jesus. And certainly what Daniel saw sounds very similar to the vision of the ascended Christ which John had in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And I was trying to sort of piece together some clues. When you think that earlier in the book of Daniel, I can't remember when we were looking at it, there was that um, burning, fiery furnace. Do you remember that scene there? There was a heavenly being there, like a son of God, alongside the three people in the fiery furnace. When you put that alongside the glorious son of man figure... That we have in Daniel's vision in chapter 7. I don't think it's a massive stretch to say that Daniel here is given a vision of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And that vision is awesome. So one heavenly figure there. But he is not the only heavenly force mentioned in the chapel. There are, p- chapter there are powerful evil forces as well. So... You might have noticed in verse 13, it says there, The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, because I was detained there with the king of Persia. And the natural meaning of that phrase, it seems to me, is that among the spiritual beings opposed to God, at least one is assigned to a territory or kingdom. Namely, Persia. So there's a prince of Persia. And presumably, this prince of Persia's job was to darken the people of Persia to keep them from having the truth and light of God's word. And this guy, the prince of Persia, has detained the awesome heavenly messenger we've already met from coming to Daniel with the heavenly message. He's detained him for three weeks. He did not want this oracle to get to Daniel. That's just what we would expect about the devil, from what Jesus says about the devil, that he is a liar and the father of lies. So the devil and his agents are committed to suppressing God's truth. Hence the activity of the prince of the kingdom of Persia in delaying God's revelation from reaching Daniel, God's prophet. But there's more, because in verses 20 and 21, two more messengers are mentioned. Verse 20, so he said, Do you know why I've come to you? Soon I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I'll tell you what's written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. So the awesome heavenly messenger that we said might be... uh, an Old Testament vision of Jesus Christ, is going to go back to fight against the prince of the kingdom of Persia and defeat him, and then they'll appear on the scene another great enemy spirit, the prince of Greece. Okay, it's it's a big big deal to try and think it through, isn't it? So uh, bear with me, let's keep going. What I think we, we learn from it is that as the different kingdoms, talked about this season of re- regime change that was happening between Babylonia and Persia. As the different kingdoms rise and fall, different demonic spirits hold sway and have to be dealt with by God's angelic forces, who obviously include this character, Michael. It seems that he has a, a special assignment to protect Israel. He's described to Daniel as your prince in verse 21. But that doesn't mean he's Daniel's guardian angel. The word for your there is actually plural. Michael is a spiritual power working for God's people. And he is with the awesome heavenly messenger who comes to Daniel. So here's the picture. In the passing of history, various empires rise and fall. Persia passes from the stage and gives way to Greece in due time and in the midst of the clash of all these great powers Babylonia, Persia, Greece or think of the animals of chapter 8 the ram and the goats the fate of a community of exiles Jewish exiles seems really unimportant but in fact beside them and for them stands and fights the divine messenger himself and Michael the archangel. That's, it ought to be enough to blow the mind. You're looking very sort of um, quiet and as if you're taking it all on in, in good spirit. That's probably to do with wearing the mask, isn't it? It would be great to be able to see your faces more clearly and see how horrified or cheerful you are at this point. But the Bible is clear that there are powerful devilish forces at work in the world, and particularly that they are opposed to the truth of God's word, to Daniel getting this message that he is to pass on in this case. So other verses, just uh, if you're into just finding the bigger picture biblically. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says that the devil darkens the minds of unbelievers. Matthew 13, verse 4, says that the devil is busy plucking away the seed of God's word. He's probably doing it even now in church this evening. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 18, says that he thwarts missionary activity. If a missionary is trying to get God's word out, the devil is trying to block that happening. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, says that he takes false teachers... Captive to do his will, presumably by promoting error in the church and in the world. So there are hostile spiritual powers at work in the world doing great spiritual damage. They have great power, but not ultimate power. No, because there is a greater power with other spiritual powers in his service. C.S. Lewis used to say that there are two equal and opposite errors that we can fall into with regards to the devil and his agents. And he would be equally happy with either error. Either we pay no attention to the devil and his agents, or we pay far too much attention to them. That's a very wise thing he said. We shouldn't disregard the devil because these spiritual powers do exist and they're powerful and dangerous. But we shouldn't flatter them by giving them too much attention either. We ought to take encouragement and uh, reason, as Elisha put it. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. In particular, Jesus is mightier. And I don't have the spiritual illumination that says there are different princes at work in Russia and Ukraine and elsewhere in the world today, in China but I think we can assume that Jesus is Lord wherever the forces of evil are at work. I like the story about some students in America who were taking time out from some rather draining study on the book of Revelation in the Bible by playing a bit of basketball together. And they noticed that the Jim caretaker was sitting reading. What are you reading, Jim, they asked. He replied, oh, the book of Revelation." They thought, this is great luck, we're studying Revelation, and here he is, he's reading it. Phew, they said, do you mind telling us what it's all about? Easy, he said, Jesus wins. And Revelation is like Daniel. It's the same challenging apocalyptic style. If you weren't slightly baffled as we read chapter 10, well, look forward to chapter 11 next week when Edward is preaching. It's, it's challenging, apocalyptic style that we've got. It was tough for Daniel to receive the revelation, and it's tough for us to grasp it. But never, never doubt the basic message is this. Jesus wins. So I want to encourage us just to take in that awesome vision again in verses 5 and 6 before we move on. Verse 5, I looked up. And there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the fine gold from Ufaz. That's the finest gold there is around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Okay, then we've seen The Portrait of Human Weakness, a portrait of heavenly power. Now, how do those two realities intersect? How can heavenly power and human weakness come together? One final heading very briefly, and it's this, humble prayer. Humble prayer. The chapter started with Daniel mourning for three weeks, fasting and praying. And that was what had triggered the deployment of the awesome heavenly messenger. One man on his knees. That's what Daniel was told in verse 12. Then he continued, Don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I've come in response to them. Actually, it's a very similar thing What we had last week, Daniel was told by Gabriel about his praying in chapter 9. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. very odd with heavenly visions in chapter 7 and 8, and then another long vision to come in chapters 11 and 12. You've got this interruption in chapters 9 and 10, where the focus is on Daniel praying. So these visions are all about the rise and fall of nations and empires. And God is sovereign over all those things happening. He's sovereign over what's going on in the world today as we read the papers. Heavenly power. But amazingly, heavenly power works in response to humble prayer. Daniel had walked the corridors of power in the greatest superpowers of the planet. A bit like working in the West Wing of the White House for him during Nebuchadnezzar's reign and even beyond that. Now he's old, he's weak, he's still in exile, he's under a new empire. But someone so small on earth is involved in something huge in heaven by his prayers. C.H. Spurgeon put it like this. Prayer is the slender nerve which moves the muscle of omnipotence. Prayer is the slender nerve which moves the muscle of omnipotence. And I wonder if we believe that. Because in the hidden spiritual battle, which can't be seen by the naked eye, God has chosen to work through our prayers. To marshal his troops, to rout the enemy troops, through the humble prayers of his people. Definitely raises the stakes for what we're going to do in the next little bit of the service, isn't it? As we pray or for our prayer meetings. Do we have that sense as we look at these visions in Daniel that they're not just matter for pondering, but for praying about? One of the things that has been sort of taken from us by COVID and lockdown and the difficulty of meeting in a way where we're not sort of socially distanced We haven't been able to pray as well on Sundays with each other as we might have liked to. I want to encourage us to resurrect the habit of praying after services so that we can just gather with another Christian, another sister or brother in Christ, and weak though we are, move the muscles of omnipotence, as it were. I don't claim to have had, as I said, a heavenly visitor as Daniel had, but I, I don't know how we can not have the sense that uh, awesome things are happening in the world at the moment. And what it's hard to believe, what the world will never tell you and the papers won't tell you, is that actually the spiritual significance is even more than all the awful upheaval there is that's happening on the screen as we uh, have the news feeds going all the time, seeing what's going on. What is the spiritual significance for the spread of the gospel in these different countries? And maybe if our eyes off the ball a bit, we pray in a moment for China and for mission partners out there. Or talk to Nick about other areas of great need around the world that are on his mind and on the minds of other NGOs and charities all across the globe. I've no no doubt in my mind that um, we will be more effective as an agent of God's plans here and further afield if we're willing to mourn and fast and pray as Daniel did. Well, Let's turn to prayer, therefore. I want to suggest we start just by praying close to home and then we'll sing a bit
0: and then we'll pray slightly further afield.